0: WeHelp is supported by Social Work License Map, a simple guide to social work licensure that clarifies the steps needed to become a social worker in your state. WeHelp is not a substitute for professional care. If you have or suspect you may have a health problem, consult your health care provider. Hello, everyone. Welcome to WeHelp, the podcast bringing you a glimpse into the life of social workers. I'm Arlie Wynn. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to our first WeHelp episode. If you like what you hear, feel free to give us a review. I want to talk about something I've been seeing a lot of in my Facebook news feed recently. As we all know, there's a chance that Donald Trump may become our president, and a lot of folks are not happy about that. In fact, so many people are upset that there's a trending hashtag on Twitter called #movingtoCanada. to Canada. But what if you left your hometown, the city that gives you comfort, the home where your heart is? Because you had no choice. Our first story is about Mohammed, a political asylee from Iraq who came to the US in late 2011 to escape the war zone country to save himself, his wife, and children. Back home, he was a reputable citizen who also worked as a women's rights activist. However, being a part of such a Western movement was highly frowned upon, and involvement was a constant threat to his life. The decision to come to the US was also to provide a better life for his family. As a woman in Iraq, you cannot go out to work or to the market without the presence of a man. His wife and daughters could not live the life of freedom they wanted. And so, to make a better life for his family, they decided to flee the country.
1: Before Iraq, there was a hope like they're going to overthrow the extremists and they're going to be like, they're going to reestablish the government. They're going to just have a new democratic institution in the country. So, there was a lot of hope, so that's why they were hiring like local people to help them run their missions, which was like rebuilding the government, re-infrastructures, re-infra- health, education, like all those sectors, the U.S. started to invest to rebuild. So, after a while, then we slowly, like, after, say, 2006 and 7, we saw, like, they couldn't defeat the enemy. They started to re-empower. So, when they started to reemerge, so instead of targeting the U.S., they wanted to target the local people who was helping them. And there's been a lot of stories on New York Times. Like, every day they were killing the interpreter who used to work as an interpreter with the U.S. government. When they caught them, they slaughtered a couple of them, and they showed the video in the media. They were targeting us. They were targeting our company's car with the RPG rocket launcher. Like, basically, their main target became the local people rather than the international community. Because they say, like, you, we're not going to blame them. That was how they interpreted their goal. We're not going, we don't blame the Americans to national because they were calling them like, their foreigners. So since you guys are helping them to achieve their goal, you are the real enemy to us, not them. And that was soon, I believe, realized by the U.S. Bush administration back then. That's why they started a new policy for the Iraqis who used to work with the U.S. mission. They said after one year of helping the U.S. mission, they were automatically entitled to U.S. green card, which is held the U.S. law. So they realized, like, because the life of these people are going to be in danger. And I was one of those people, like, because I was socially active. I was the woman rights activist. I knew any time my life was in danger, any time they could harm me. Mm. Because the U.S. was trying to withdraw. The local government is the most corrupt nation on the earth. Like, the police itself is corrupt. Who's going to protect me? Mm. They could keep me on the street. Everybody's, like, they have gun or something. They can just shoot me right in front of the police. Nobody would ever ask them. They like, created that? So because of all those reasons and I knew like this government not going to last longer because now we see like it's back to the civil war, almost like the back during the 90s. So now the government is like there's still civil war going on. So in 2011 before things became worse, I decided to leave the country and come to the U.S.
0: What made you get into the
1: women's rights movement? Where did it all start? I felt bad. Like we men we could do whatever we wanted. like. Why do women like who is part of the society, they can't, at least we wanted them to go to university without being harassed. That's are their basic rights. It is against both Islamic belief and also social and morality. Like, if you put it into Islamic context, they say, like, you're not allowed to look with a bad gaze to a woman, let alone touching a woman on the street or say bad words. You see, like, if you guys are thinking you guys are, like, Muslim or trying to impose Islamic I wouldn't say law, like, Islamic values. That's against those values. Let the woman at least go to schools without being harassed. Or they couldn't go to the market because in the market, people started to tell them, whatever woman, like, especially in, in jeans or shirts, like, like you just, like, go, they thought, like, they're prostitutes. We are trying to change the perception of society. Like, wait, clothes cannot determine a woman's, like, ethics or morality. We thought, like, hey, these are the truths in the society. This has been over there for a long time. Imagine our own sisters and mothers. If they come on the street, if somebody say this to them, how do we feel? Let's pretend like other girls in the society or our own sisters, let's speak on their behalf. I know not everybody has the voice because the family wouldn't let them to do. I say, let's take this risk and speak on their behalf. It
0: sounds like you were very much going against the beat of the drum in terms of the Iraqi culture. Do your parents
1: support you as a women's rights activist? I wouldn't say yes and no, but they're neutral. Because I told them like I know what I'm doing, because guess I was the only one who had the highest education in my whole family, and they respect that. Probably like, I know what I'm doing. Uh, whenever they say anything, I could always bring them the text, the cultural text where they believe. Like you guys are feeling very traditional. Do you want your daughter to be touched by somebody on the street? Of course, they would say no. We're gonna kill them. Then why do you want other? sisters or daughters of other people to be touched so put yourself in their your shoes like although the society is against it but my family now they can't do anything about it they, they're fine with it like, to be honest my family would never ever do anything i do against your beliefs because we have some practices social practices in the society which we inherited from a long time ago so it takes a time like gradually you wanted to oppose whatever you didn't see it right.
0: How was the transition for your family when it came to the time to come here to the United States?
1: Well, that was the pretty hardest thing. Like that was the toughest decision I ever made. And she was like she was so happy but she wanted to leave there because there was no life for her. She couldn't leave home without me or my brothers accompanying her. Even if she wanted to go down the block to the market, she was supposed to be accompanied by a man go to the society like she couldn't go to the market like they all had these limitations she didn't care like she just wanted to be in a society where she could live for herself and also for our kids she was this forcing me I never wanted to come because I said like I was having this imagination okay if we all leave who's going to stay in this country let's this country invested in us so we we're here like for the past 10 years we know how everything works but let us just help with like you alone yourself cannot do anything. When they're going to shoot you, you're going to be dead. You can't do anything. So I was submitting to her request to come over here, and I was thinking like I was hoping for the worst.
0: Mohammed goes on to explain the rejections from social workers he faced as he tried to get into the job market. Without the support of social workers, the process of finding a job became a chore and emotionally taxing. Imagine having a stable job in IT here in New York City, having a little bit of upper class. And then one day moving to a different city just to have others say that your credentials and experience do not matter. Thankfully, in the end, he did meet a helpful and inspiring social worker that led him to the job he has today.
1: When I move over here, because I met like one or two social workers and all over here, like they completely made me hopeless. I showed him like I'm a Microsoft certified IT professional. I had my Microsoft certification, it's almost seven certification from Microsoft. I did like my bachelor's in business administration. I was a political science student, and I had like 10 years of experience in system analysis and system design, both nationally and internationally. I met this girl, I said, like, Look, these are my experiences. This is where I have worked. This is what I know. And I'm looking for something like entry level because I came to the US to build a new life. I want to pursue my education, have my kids have a good life. The lady looked at me like, Hey, forget about it. Whatever you did over there doesn't worth anything over here. You wouldn't be able to get anything. We have a job at the warehouse if you want to go. Good if not. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I looked at her. I said, look at my resume. I'm Microsoft certified. Microsoft certification is not easy. I'm sure like within New York, there are a number of people who did the certification. And it's not from that country. It is from Microsoft based in the U.S. where they took a test online and I passed it. She said, I'm sorry, we can't help you. I came and I met a lady called Jinan Hu. She gave me so much about, oh, no, of course we can help you, so you have so many experience, blah, blah. No, definitely you can get somewhere, so don't worry. But She gave me some type of hope. like, oh, wait, maybe that's going to work. A week later, they had a job fair in the gymnasium downstairs. One of the guys who was not here, his name was Ben, he was a great guy. He said, like, hey, let me make your resumes. He made my resumes in the format, which was, like, he wanted to be in the format. Then I went to those job fairs, and I gave my resume to a couple of people. Then like next week I got a call from one of the it was an IT consultant from like, hey, we have you wanna work with us? We have blah blah. I said sure because they helped me out this agency. I said like I still feel indebted to you guys because I could never ever imagine I could be wherever I am now. I always feel indebted to you guys. I would love to come back and at least pay my debt to you guys. Sure I would. Then I came back and since then it was two thousand twelve, May. I've been working with this agency in the finance department. And I was like the hardest thing, like, I was like, no. At least for the first five or six years until I settled down, I was hoping for the least of my own pleasure so I could give more to the family. So mm-hmm. I said, like, leave me suffer now so I could have, like, <laughs> something better in the future. That one social worker has changed my perception and changed my life and my family by giving me a hope, like, yes. Like, I never give up. After she gave me the hope, you can do it, I never give up. I was trying to come here, go to... Madison, this strategy group, something in the Midtown, go to IRC. Like, I was trying every single agency which they, were having, which they were willing to help asylees. So that word gave me so much hope. So I could say like these social workers could build or ruin a new refugee or asylees future life in the U.S. by how they mentally going to make them ready. They shouldn't undermine people who were educated back then, and asylum who come, like, they don't come from street over there, they did something back in their country, whether it was like socially, politically, or educationally, or whatever, they have something where they could contribute in the society. So let them take the chance to flourish what they gained over there, or maybe they transfer to the society. Yeah, let, give them a chance. Don't say like, no, oh, you came from a thermal country. If you work hard, there's a lot of transfer in the U.S. that you can get whatever you want by working hard. So they should tell them, like, they have, like, the sky's the limit for them. The more they struggle, the more they can achieve. There's no limit in the U.S. Do you ever wish that you could go back? This is always my wish, yeah.
0: <laughs> if you could, you would just go yep. drop everything here? Yep. second guest for this episode is Ina Offer. She is a refugee social worker who currently runs the refugee program at the Queen's YMCA. We first discuss how social workers can start working in this field, then glance into Ina's average process of accepting refugees, and lastly, we head on the topic of dealing with refugees, treating them as effective members of society, and clearing any misconceptions about them.
2: Okay, so I'm Ina Ackerman. It's actually hyphenated. I'm Ina Ackerman Offer, but I never use the second name. I'm from New York City and I went to NYU for social work. I actually originally got into social work because I wanted to do, I wanted to be a therapist. You could do that or you can go into psychology and I just felt like social work was more what I was interested in because it's sort of person in environment focused and I think that the environment does play a part, a huge part in what the person becomes and this was my first year's internship. So I was actually here at the Y for my first year, and then they ended up hiring me to work part-time for the second year. And so it was sort of like, I kind of ended up doing what I'm doing because it was (laughs) convenient in the beginning, but then I stayed. And it wasn't what I originally wanted to do. It was, like I said, I wanted to do more clinical work. But now what I do is more, it's programs development and that kind of thing. Like I'm running two different programs here.
0: Why did you want to do more clinical work? I guess
2: I felt like, you know, in order for people to be successful in society, that they needed to take care of all their mental health issues. And then I actually, I worked just for a month in a clinic. And I kind of realized while I was at the clinic that I don't think I want to do, you know, strictly clinical work because they would tell me stuff like, you know, they have all these issues and they don't have a job. And I would, in my mind, start thinking, oh, wait, you need a job. So I realized that I like to help them solve, you know, concrete issues in their life more than doing mental health work, because honestly, I feel like in order to take care of a lot of the mental health issues, they need to take care of a lot of the concrete issues first or both together which you can do if you're working with somebody in this type of setting uh, where you're helping them find jobs and things like that and trainings. You can also address some of the mental health stuff, and you can refer them out if they need to be referred out. But if you're doing mental health, there's not much you can do in terms of their concrete needs because you're not really supposed to go there with them. You know. So I ended up switching <laughs> what I was interested in, and now I'm here. I do the F-SET that program. It's a program for people who are receiving SNAP benefits. So basically, we provide training, job coaching, and all types of, you know, job support for people. Basically, trying to help be like a support system for people who don't necessarily have it to help them find jobs and not just find them, but keep them. I also do the refugee and asylum program. And that program is, it's the same thing, kind of. We do job search assistance and job coaching and training uh, for refugees and asylees. But then we also do a lot of referrals and we do some counseling too. For the refugee and asylee program, we don't have a lot of participants, mainly because it's not a program that you need to have a lot of participants for. And in any case, there aren't like huge amounts of refugees and asylees like people think. There, are, there aren't, there are like, so many just,
0: you know, crawling all over New York City. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of walk me through the steps that you take once the refugee walks in the door?
2: I guess the initial process for everyone is the same, but then what happens afterwards is different depending on the case. So at first, they would come in and meet with me or somebody else who can do an intake, and we just do an intake with them. Basically, I just ask them where they're from, immigration status I get proof of status copy all their documents and create a file for them there isn't really I mean we talk about their goals in terms of employment I talk about their education with them and we talk about what their plan is going forward what trainings they want to do and what they would like the goals I mentioned we talked about goals so what they want to do afterwards and that's basically it it's just about it takes about an hour or so Mm -hmm. sometimes less depending on how much they talk. And then after that I would refer them to whatever's appropriate for them at the moment. Sometimes we have participants who in the refugee program and the SILE program that maybe they don't want to do training right away, maybe they want to take ESL courses, or they want to apply for Medicaid and they've been denied or some there was some issue or they just don't know how to do it. So most of the time with Medicaid issues and health insurance, I refer them out because there are people who specialize in that. And it's a little bit more complicated than people think. So I'll refer them to an agency that I have a connection with. Usually I'm sort of like the base person, and they'll come back to me for whatever issue they have. And then I'll say, okay, you know, go here to take care of that. Or, so it's sort of like I'm just the person who kind of helps them navigate the system, basically. You know, because it's confusing and they're not from here. And, I mean, it's confusing for people who are from here. So, you know, sort of just helping them get to the right resources so that they can actually get the things that they need. Refugees Fugees and Insiders are, are different than, like, immigrants, other types of immigrants, because they have access to a lot more resources. If you are just kind of, like, standard immigrant, you would not be eligible for a lot of services until you've been here for a certain amount of time. So, But for refugees and asylees, they're eligible right away. I mean, you can understand why, because you know, they don't have a choice. They're here because they can't be in their country, otherwise they'll be persecuted. For other immigrants, I mean, they chose to come. So it's sort of like the government gives you of a pass for being an asylee or a refugee saying, listen, like, we know that you didn't come here because you just feel like taking advantage or something, like, you have to leave your country, so we're going to help you out. That's also something where the person that our refugees and asylees are dealing with has to understand that it's a different case than just a regular immigration case. That's why it's important for me to kind of know where they're going in terms of what where they're going for help and they're applying for certain things, that these are people who are knowledgeable and understand that this is different and uh, most of the time I'll refer them out to people who deal with immigrant cases a lot so that they kind of understand, you know, what's going on.
0: Has there ever been a moment since you've been working in the program where you thought, wow, this is really gratifying to me, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm doing this? I
2: don't know if there's a specific moment. I feel that when I first started working with Refugees and asylees, I assume that they wouldn't want to share a lot of information because it's also like a lot of traumatizing things happen. I thought, you know, I'm like, they won't want to talk to me. But I was actually surprised by how open so many of them are and how much of their story they actually do tell. And I work with two different types of populations here. The refugees and asylees are by far the most grateful population. I don't know how to explain it, but. It's sort of like anything I do, it's like, oh, my God, that's so great. Thank you so much, you know? And to me, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to refer you out to this person. Go talk to that person, make, and I'll make sure that the person knows that they're coming. Those types of things, like regular social work things. But they're so grateful for it. It's very different, I think, than a lot of other. Like a lot of other groups will come in, and they'll sort of expect you to do that. Because that's what you're supposed to do. You're a social worker. They understand that. You're their social worker. You help them. And a lot of times they'll get angry, you know, if you don't help them good enough. But it's never, I've never had that kind of experience with the refugee population. I mean, just recently I was working with someone and he... Went back to his friend and he's like, Oh my God, you know, it's so nice and she helps me so much. And everything he does, he'll call me to update me and say, Oh, remember you told me to go to this place and I went there. I'm just letting you know. And I'm going to start my training on this day. And it's like, you know, he's doing all the work for me. (laughs) Like, I don't have to call him to ask him what's going on Mm -hmm. because he'll call me and tell me. Um, But then it also shows how important you are to these particular people because. They think about calling you right away. They don't have anybody else who's helping them with that stuff. You know, you're the only person. So you're more important in their life than, let's say, somebody else who works with multiple social workers in different programs and they've always done that and, you know, they're kind of used to the system and the way things go. This is like, it's just a completely different type of participant.
0: I bet a lot of the stories you hear are tough to listen to. They aren't filled with roses and daisies. How do you cope with the stress? I
2: have a supervisor, a Mm -hmm. clinical supervisor. So I would talk to him about that. There actually was a case when somebody came in and he told his story and it was kind of an odd experience for me because I felt like, wow, he's telling me all this information and this is awful stuff. But he's telling me in such a calm, like almost sort of detached type of way which I don't know if there's any other way to tell it when it's that traumatizing, you know? You can't sit there and be like, oh my God, that's so terrible because he's not even acting like it's terrible. So it's sort of this kind of, how do I react to this? Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to tell you this This is an awful story because you're telling it to me like it's not, but it is. And I was responding in like an empathic way, you know, like, oh wow, you know, that sounds terrible. But I was kind of shocked, I guess, by the things that he said. And it w- I remember thinking, like, this is not, it doesn't sound like real life. Like, this sounds like something that you see in a movie, but this guy is sitting in front of me, and it actually happened to him, and, you know, what do I say to him? And anything I say is not going to really make it better. And then on top of it, I couldn't even accept him as a participant, because his asylum status was on hold.
0: Is this particular case one of the hardest ones you've had to handle?
2: Yeah. And it's so frustrating because he clearly needs a lot of help because, I mean, this is a person who's educated, like very educated. He has a degree. Um, he's obviously very intelligent. He's had this awful experience, and now he's here, and he's just waiting to get his asylum status. And he was rejected once, and so he was waiting for his second court date. And this was going on not for months, like for years. So basically, he, I mean, he can't even get any services. Like he can't get Medicaid. He can't get any kind of SNAP benefits or anything. He can't. He's just basically in limbo because he's waiting for some judge to say that his story is valid. That's really frustrating. And there's nothing you can do. You can't speed it up. You know, he has his date and that's it. Or he doesn't have his date, and he has to wait for it. So what I did is I just told him, listen, whenever you have your status, just come back to me. And even if I can't help him, I can refer him to somebody else. But there's, like, it sucks because there's like nothing anybody can do. I feel like having results with my other participants is really what helps me feel better about those types of cases where there's not anything that I can do. And then also... You know, helping people like translate their transcripts and things like that, and having them be able to use their education here, that actually really helps me feel better about what we're doing. Because I think what a lot of people don't know is that so many refugees and asylees come here, and they they're educated, and they were doing important jobs where they came from, and then they came here, and it's like you know, all of a sudden you're like who cares who you are like nobody cares you're, it's assumed that you don't know anything that you're not educated i mean these guys are like working in gyro places so this guy's like serving gyro and people are thinking like he's just an uneducated immigrant basically for lack of a better word and that's not who he is
0: why do you think that's such an issue though do you think it's the language barrier or the lack of knowledge on where to begin to find an engineering job here in the states like once you come over
2: I actually think it's a mix of both. I, I don't think people openly reject, but I've seen people actually be really mean to refugees. I mean, people in social services. Like, they're supposed to be applying for something, and the person is like, oh, well, you didn't bring the proper documents, so you have to come in again. And it's like, what? why didn't you just give them a list of the documents that they were supposed to bring so that they would have it? And do you think it's just fine to ask a person to come in over and over again because you are not doing your job correctly. So now they have to, you know, spend their time. Like their time is not worth anything because they're a refugee. This person has a job. This person is trying to feed themselves. So, you know, they don't have time to just come here and bring documents that you you didn't care enough to make a list of. So I do think that there's like there's there are barriers in that way where people aren't even people in social services aren't helping in a way that is I guess efficient. I mean it seems, sometimes it seems like they don't want to then also they have you know they have degrees and things that maybe this country we say that you know that school is you know not a valid school. like we don't recognize that school and we think that school is worthless, so your degree is worthless. Never mind that you spent five years learning this. And you can probably explain it much better than people who are doing that as a job. But, you know, because we don't recognize it, so you don't get your degree. Or there are cases where they, sometimes they they can't get their transcripts. I mean, remember they left their country, and now they have to, like, communicate with that country and ask for papers. (laughs) And sometimes they won't give it to them. So they'll say, no, you can't have your transcript. Or you, would need, I've had somebody who said that their school told them that they have to come in person to pick it up. Okay, so you left this country because you were afraid you were going to be killed. And then now you have to go back there so you can pick up your transcript to bring it back here. I'm not sure exactly the reason for it. But I know that it makes life very difficult for our refugees and asylees. And then a lot of times if they want to work in a job where they need that education they'll have to do it over again Mm -hmm. Um, we've had people come who are doctors they were doctors in their country and then they came here and that's not recognized at all so they say okay i'll be a home health aide (laughs) it's close enough it's like but it's not close at all
0: (laughs) just listening to your side of the story makes me feel frustrated Do you, you know, often speak to refugees who want to quit or feel defeated by the system?
2: The funny thing is that you would think that they would say that, but they don't. Usually, they'll stay focused on what they need to do in order to get there. I don't think I've ever had a refugee or asylee who's like, oh, look, I'm here, and, you know, nobody's recognizing my degree, and this is frustrating. It's more kind of, well, this is my degree, and I want to do something related to it, So, can I do this? And if I do this, then what can I do after that? Um, So, it's the attitude is so much more focused on just solving the issue and not necessarily on, um, well, this, you know, this sucks, basically. And I think that's why it can be so rewarding working with refugees and asylees because, I mean, they just do what they have to do to get where they need to go. You don't have to argue with anybody. You don't have to convince anybody to do anything. (laughs) It's just like, here, do this, and this is going to be good for you. And then they just, okay, that's great. I'm going to do that.
0: This episode was inspired by the Netflix series starring Aziz Ansari called Master of None. Master of None revolves around a 30-year-old first-generation American named Dev who's trying to survive the modern playground we call New York City. Like many New Yorkers, Dev eats at the trendiest restaurants, knows all the hidden gems, and somehow manages to still be able to pay his rent. In an episode, Dev realizes the struggle and hardship his parents had to endure in order to create the cushy life that he currently has. He puts it into perspective. What an insane journey! My dad used to bathe in a river, and now he drives a car that talks to him. We were inspired to share the real stories behind this powerful concept of immigrants struggling to succeed in a foreign country. In this episode... Mohammed shares his personal experience with being a refugee and an immigrant in America. He came here seeking a better life for himself and his family. Like does parents, he was able to achieve his goals with the guidance of caring and open-minded social workers. A positive social worker can make or break another refugee's life. This definitely was a case for Muhammad. Ina, the social worker, works with refugees like Muhammad on a daily basis to help them get back on their feet. Refugees are more than who we think they are, and it's hard to remember that they are humans and individuals. we become so detached from the situations presented by the media, and we often see only a fraction of the reality behind it. I hope this podcast has changed or built on your previous thoughts about refugees. I know interviewing them has definitely changed mine. Thank you for listening to our first We Help episode. I will see you next month when we touch on the topic of sexual assault for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Our podcast today was produced by Yesenia Yee and me, Arlie Wynn. Audio editing by com. Music by Quill, Florincom J, and Ido333. Special thanks to the Special Projects team at 2U, child's Blair Gardner and Jeremy Divinity. Shout out to Jonathan Singer from the Social Work Podcast. Without you, we would have never finished our first episode. Visit our website, www.socialworklicensemap.com, for more information.